All right, thank you, praise team. I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles with me today to Luke chapter 20. Now, I've got to bring everyone up to date in case you weren't here last Sunday, because everything that we're going to see today, it all builds upon what we studied last Sunday in this past Wednesday. What we have been doing over the last year in studying this gospel of Luke is we've been seeing the wondrous mystery of Christ. Just as the, the praise team was singing, we've been singing, we've been seeing and reading and studying the wondrous mystery of the work of Christ as he walked on the earth. And what we saw last Sunday, if you were here, we studied chapter 19 of Luke, beginning in verse 28, and we saw this passage. We unpacked this passage that typically we study on Palm Sunday because it is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And he rides in on the donkey and all the people were shouting, Hosanna to the king, Hosanna to the king, by the way. That is a messianic call. They were recognizing him as the Messiah sent from God. And what we saw last week is that the religious, especially the Pharisees, did not like the people calling out. And so they told Jesus, make them be quiet. But Jesus said, no, I won't. I won't make them be quiet because if they did, even the rocks would cry out. This past Wednesday, if you were not here, we began chapter 20 and we studied the first 18 verses of 20. And in response to, so Jesus has gone to the temple and he is teaching. And in response to the Pharisees, the religious people coming against him, Jesus tells them a parable that sets them off. What we're going to read in just a moment, it was because of this parable that they finally said, the religious, the Pharisees finally said, enough is enough. We're not going to take it anymore. We have to find a way to bring an end to Jesus. What was the parable? He told this parable about a landowner and a vineyard and the tenants of the vineyard. Now, what we studied this past Wednesday, that begins in verse 9 and goes all the way down to verse 18. What we studied this past Wednesday is those religious that Jesus was talking to, they knew what the parable was about. When Jesus said in the parable, there was a landowner who had a vineyard. Immediately, every Jew would say, he is talking about God and Israel. Because all throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referred to, God refers to Israel as his vineyard. So much so that even one of their national signs was a vineyard. And so they knew Jesus is talking about God planting a vineyard. And the tenants that tended to the vineyard were going to be the Pharisees, were going to be the religious. And Jesus in this Pharisee says, in this parable says that, uh, the, the landowner went on a journey and he sent some servants to check on the tenants and the tenants ran them away. That's the prophets. And then finally, the landowner says, I know I'm going to send my son. And what, what, does the ten, what do the tenants do? They kill the son. And he's talking about himself being the Messiah, that the religious will kill him. And so in response to that, the religious, the Pharisees say at the end of verse 16, surely not. Surely you are not claiming to be the Messiah. Surely you are not saying that we are bad tenants of the vineyard. Surely, Jesus, you are not saying that we are going to kill the Messiah. And Jesus brings a reference from Psalm 118, and he tells them, in essence, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So that brings us to verse 19, and here's what we read. So the scribes and the chief priests... Because of that, because of all that happened over the last couple of days, the singing Hosanna to the king, the parable that Jesus uh, tells about the vineyard, because of that, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus that very hour. They were saying, the time's come. This is enough. Enough's enough. We've taken all that we're going to take, and we're going to do something with him. For they 
perceived that he had told the parable about the vineyard against them. That they knew what Jesus was saying. That they were poor tenants and they had run all the prophets off. And now they were going to kill the Messiah. But look at this. But they feared people. I want you to understand that by this time um, in, in, in the life of the nation of Israel, the Pharisees had really just become a political body. Sure, they were supposed to be the religious leaders of the day, but they were really just a political body. They led the, the people of Israel politically. And like all politicians, they cared about what the populace says. Like all politicians, they wanted to know what did the majority say, and they were going to go with the majority. They wouldn't act on killing Jesus because they were politicians, and the people were in favor of Jesus. The polls said people like Jesus, and so they said, we can't do anything to them, but we're going to figure out a way. What is going to be their way? What is going to be what they attempt next to try to get Jesus, try to um, trap Jesus? So in verse 20 we read, so they watched him, and then they did this. They sent in spies. And what did these spies do? They pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something that he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a good spy story. I don't read spy books, but I love to watch a good spy movie. I like to watch good spy television shows. Not long ago, uh, I watched uh, on streaming, it was an original show on AMC called Turn, Washington Spies. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a fascinating three, four, five seasons. I don't know how many seasons there were, but it was about, it was based upon historical truth, although they elaborated and, and took uh, license to, to add a lot into it. But it's about the first spies that George Washington used that ultimately helped win the Revolutionary War. Fascinating. I like spy movies. I like spy shows. However, like you, we don't like spies that are coming against us. So I don't like these spies. Now, for some reason, Luke doesn't tell us much other than they sent spies. The Gospel of Mark, the writer of Mark, he tells us a little more detail about these spies. As a matter of fact, he tells us who these spies were. Not so much that oh, uh, John was a spy and Ryan was a spy, but the types of people that were sent in to be spies. And it's important that we understand it. Because what Mark tells us is these spies that went in to ask Jesus a question that we're going to get to in a moment... He's, Mark says that it was the Pharisees and the Herodians that went in to be spies in Jesus' camp. Why is that important? Well, we've, I've already told you that the Pharisees, they were, they were basically just a political party of the day. They represented the people of Israel in the government. Do you know who their enemies were? The Herodians. The, the Pharisees were the religious, they led the people, they were the voice of the people for the, for the Roman government. The Herodians were the servants of Herod that the Pharisees didn't like. And so their arch enemy, the Pharisees' arch enemy, were the Herodians, another political party. But what Mark tells us that's very interesting, that what they did, although they were enemies, they thought Jesus was a bigger enemy, and so they come together. And together, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians worked together to try to discredit Jesus and bring his ministry to an end. And so how do they do it? Well, they're going to come up with a question. Before they come up with a question, though, we see that they're also liars. Unfortunately, uh, I'm not going to paint a broad picture here and say like all politicians, but as we know, like most politicians, they're willing to bend the truth. They're willing to say the things that people want to hear even though they have no conviction that it's true. 
They say the right things even when they don't believe it. And that's what we're going to see. They're going to use flattery. So these Pharisees and Herodians, these spies, they say to Jesus in verse 21, so they ask him, teacher, we know that you speak the we know that you speak and teach rightly. They don't know that. They don't even believe that. But that's what they think the people want to hear, and that's what they think can be used to capture Jesus, to kind of let his guard down. We know that you speak and teach rightly. They thought all of his teaching was wrong. And you show no partiality. They know that wasn't true either because he had gone on a tirade earlier in Luke talking about the Pharisees and calling them, uh, calling them they were hypocrites. And so they don't say, they don't believe what they're saying, but as politicians, they're going to say it anyway, but truly teach the way of God. They disagreed all the way through that what he was teaching was the way of God. And so they asked this question in verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? In their mind, the Herodians and the Pharisees, these spies thought that they had come up with the greatest question of all. I can just picture them. Again, we don't see this in Scripture, but I can just picture them um, that maybe the way it happened is that they, they had a spy meeting and they were, they were aside and they said, all right, what can we do? Is there any question that we can ask that's going to trip him up? Is there anything that we can do? And they start kind of brainstorming. Well, let's ask him this. Well, we could ask him this. And then finally someone said, I know what it is. Let's, at, let's ask Jesus about giving a tax to Caesar. There is no way that he can win on this. There's no answer that he can give. Because if Jesus were to say, yes, it's legal, it's right, we should give a tax to Caesar, that's the right thing to do, then all the people are going to say, we don't like him anymore. We thought Jesus was one of us. We thought he was standing up for one of us. And now he's saying uh, that we should be given a tax, and that's, uh, that's okay to give a tax. And so the spies were thinking, so if he says that, he loses the crowd. But what if he says the opposite? What if he says, what if he goes with what the crowd believes and says, oh, no, we shouldn't be having to pay a tax to Caesar, then what's going to happen? The Roman government's going to come in. They're going to arrest him. They're going to shut down his ministry. Either way, they think we're going to win. Either way, Jesus loses. He's either going to lose the following of the people or the state is going to come against him. Rome's going to come against him. They thought that it was, it was just the best question, the, the, the final way that they were going to end the ministry of Jesus. They're asking a political question. I don't know about you. I will talk politics, but I only talk politics with select group of people that I, I believe it won't cause an argument. Because there is nothing, especially in the climate of our nation today, there is nothing that, um, that will create argument and hard feelings and raise voices and passion more than talking politics. Again, they knew it. They were political parties. It was the Pharisee political party, the Herodian political party. Let's bring in politics because politics always causes a problem. And on top of that, not only just any politics, let's talk about taxation. None of us like taxation, right? But the Jews were even more so. The Jews didn't like taxation. We don't like taxation because we think and we believe, and rightly so, we work hard for our money 
And who is the government to come in and tell me that I don't give enough taxes, I need to pay more taxes, we, I work hard for my money, I need that money to pay bills, and then we think, what's the government going to do with it? They're just going to waste it anyway. We don't like taxes because it hurts us in our wallet. Well, the Jews wouldn't like taxes because of that, but there was maybe even a bigger reason why the Jews wouldn't have liked taxes and why this would have been a political bombshell for them to ask according to how Jesus answered. Because when they gave taxes, remember this was the Jews. They were proud. They were God's people. But at this time and for some years prior, they had been under the rule of a pagan government. And every time they paid taxes, it reminded them that they were no longer free. Every time they paid taxes, it reminded them that a pagan government was in control of their lives. And so it is a bombshell. It's a powder keg ready to go off. They think we've got him now. Is it legal, lawful? For us to give a tribute or a tax to Caesar, or is it not? By the way, on top of all of that, some 20, 25 years before uh, this event is taking place, there had been a rebellion of the Jews. They had said, we've had enough. And it was a nationwide rebellion where they told the Roman government, we refuse to pay any more taxes. We won't do it. Although it had been some 20, 25 years prior to this event, it was still on everyone's mind. People would still talk about that great rebellion when they said, we're not going to pay any more taxes, and Rome came in and they squashed them. They killed them. They, they squashed the rebellion, and they had to pay taxes anyway. Again, it is a powder keg issue. They were masterful in coming up with their question. The problem is, they didn't give Jesus the credit for who he was. He was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And as being the Son of God, we read in verse 23, but Jesus perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, show me a denarius, which would be the coin that they would use in order to pay their taxes. On top of a property tax, on top of a, uh, a sales tax, on top of a grain tax, on top of a wine tax, on top of all that, every male, beginning at the age of 14 during, during Jesus' day, would have to pay a denarius, a day's wage in taxes to the Roman government. And every male, every Jewish male would hate to give that denarius. And Jesus chose that coin. He says, so show me a denarius. And then Jesus asked this question, whose likeness and inscription does it have? It's a wonderful question. It's a wonderful question. If we had, were to have a denarius here today, on one side we would see, in Jesus' time, we would see the likeness of Caesar Tiberius. On the other side, if we turn that coin over, we would see this inscription. Caesar Tiberius, son of divine Augustus. So the Caesars told the Jews they were gods. And so it was, a, it was a double, triple, quadruple whammy for the Jews to have to give this denarius as a tax to a pagan government. Not only that, but it has the likeness of Caesar. He wanted to be, be worshipped. And on the back, he even claims to be a god because it says Tiberius Caesar, son of divine God, Augustus. Jesus takes that coin and he says, whose likeness is on it? 
And when you turn it over, what inscription does it say? And so they answered, Caesar's. It has Caesar's likeness on it and has Caesar's inscription on it. And he said to them, then you render, you give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and you give to God the things that are God's. They thought they had the perfect question to trap him. Either the crowds were going to get, go against him or the Roman government was going to against, go against him. No matter whichever way he answered, it's a win-win for those spies. But Jesus gave them the answer that they never anticipated. He said, whose inscription, whose image? Well, Caesar's. All right. Then Caesar's image is on it. You give it to Caesar. It belongs to Caesar. Why didn't Jesus just stop there? It would have been just as sufficient as an answer to say, whose inscription is on it? Caesar's. Okay, then give that to Caesar's. It's his. They, it still would have been a great answer. They still would have not been able to do much to Jesus. Uh, the, the crowds wouldn't have turned against him. The Roman government certainly wouldn't have turned against him. It would have been a good answer, just a short answer. Whose inscription? Caesar's. Then give it to Caesar's. It's his. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Because he follows it by saying, and then you give to God the things that are God's. The, the uh, reference is, or the um, insinuation is, you give to God the things that have God's image stamped on it. If the coin has Caesar's, give it to Caesar's. But everything that has the inscription of God, the image of God on it, you give to God. And so in verse 26, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But look at this. They marveled at his answer. ESV says, and they became silent. Maybe a better translation is, and his answer shut them up. They couldn't say anything else. They were shut up because there was no thing, nothing that they could say that they could come back now and have a reply or a rebuttal to Jesus. It's masterful. Now, that's a familiar passage to most of us. So we see it in Matthew, we see it in Mark, we see it in Luke. Well, what does this passage teach us? And, and by the way, we can go in a lot of different directions here, but I'm going to try to just contain our, our teaching today to just two points, two directions. And what I'm going to do, and I'm going to try to do this over the next several weeks as well, is as we study a passage together, I want to ask two questions. Number one, what does this passage reveal about God? What does this passage reveal about God? And then the second question is going to be, what does this passage reveal about ourselves? So as we go back and look at this account in Jesus' life, this, this masterful answer that he gives to the spies that were trying to trip him up, what do we reveal? What do we learn about God from Jesus' answer and from understanding this account? Here's what we learn about God, and we need to understand it, and we're going to bring some application to it. It is, it is important that we grasp this, because I think many within the church are not grasping it today. Here's the teaching about God from this passage, and it's simply this, that God transcends politics. Let me say it again. God transcends politics. So what's transcends mean? What do you mean by transcends? I mean that God is above and God is independent from politics. That's what we're seeing here. Jesus says, show me the coin. Whose inscription? It's Caesar's. All right, then you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you find those things that are of God's and you give that to God. God transcends politics. You see, I have this thought, I have this feeling, I have this fear that within the church, 
we are allowing our teaching and understanding and application of who God is on the same plane, on the same level as politics. And we're saying that politics and God are actually equal. All of our government, all of our politics are based upon an interpretation of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and laws that are passed by Congress. Okay, every single one. Uh, our, Our laws, everything, are based upon the Constitution, our Bill of Rights, our Declaration of Independence, and the laws. Can I tell you something? When we understand that God transcends politics, it means that God's Word transcends our Constitution. God's Word transcends the Bill of Rights. God's Word transcends the, the Declaration of Independence. And God's Word transcends the laws that we have in our land. It is God up here, God's power, God's direction, God's Word, and politics are down here. You want to know the application for that in our life? The, the understanding of what was, okay, so that's the truth. I, 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 you might say, I see it as truth. I believe that's right. You know, but do you want to know how that affects our lives? As believers, when we know that God transcends politics, we begin to recognize and we begin to say that, unlike what the world system, and unfortunately, uh, we're guilty of this within the church today, we begin to realize that the answer for our nation is not going to be a Republican president, a Republican Congress, and a Republican Senate. And the answer for our nation is not going to be a Democrat president, a Democrat Congress, and a Democrat Senate. The answer for our nation is the one who transcends the presidency, Congress, and Senate, and the Supreme Court. The answer for our nation is what we were singing about in our corporate time this morning— Father, God, King, build your kingdom right here. God transcends politics. God is the answer for our nation. Not politics. Does God care about the issues of politics? Absolutely. God cares about that unborn baby that's being aborted by the hundreds of thousands every year in our country. But can I tell you that God also cares about the immigrant that's at the border as well? How do we know that? Because God's Word teaches us that He does care about that baby that's been formed, but it also teaches us about the immigrant, that we are to care for them. God transcends politics. And what has somehow, someway, through the years, I think what has taken place, uh, what has evolved, and I don't like that word, but what has taken place within the church is The church gives lip service that, yes, God is the most important. God transcends. He is above politics. But in essence, the way the church lives out life is we live as if politics were the answer to the world's problems. And church is just not that way. That's not the truth of Scripture. You see, we shouldn't be be spending our time talking about politics Do we vote our biblical convictions? Absolutely. We must. We must study God's word and we must look at all of our candidates and say, you know what? I'm going to choose the candidate that best, none of them, by the way, are there, that best is in line with the keeping of God's word. 
But instead of talking so much about politics, what we should be talking about as God's people is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because that's what's going to change our nation. If you are believing in a president or a senator or a congressman or a Supreme Court justice to change our nation, you've missed the point. You've missed the teaching all throughout Scripture. God transcends politics. He's above. Does he care? Yes, he cares about the issues. He cares about politics. We see also in this that Jesus' mission... Because it was of the Father, it was of the Lord. Jesus' mission also transcended politics. Jesus was not going to be sidetracked. He wasn't going to be derailed. In Luke 9, 51, he set his face toward Jerusalem. And time again, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. We've, we've talked about that. It meant that Jesus was on his way to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. To be in the grave three days and be raised again to life by the Father. That was his mission. That was his goal. His eyes were set. And Jesus was not going to let politics derail, sidetrack, get in the way of what was most important. Church, we can't either. We can't either. I think it's one of the, one of the tools, one of the um, successes of Satan. That we as the church, we've gotten our eyes on politics instead of God and his transcendence. What else does this passage teach us? It teaches us that God transcends politics. But secondly, what does it reveal about us? Oh, and it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Again, Jesus, he said, give me the denarius. Whose likeness is on it? What inscription is on it? Well, it's Caesar's likeness. It's Caesar's inscription. Then he says, then you give what has Caesar's inscription to Caesar. And again, the, the reference, the implication is, and then you give to God what has God's likeness and what has God's inscription on it. So what's he talking about? What is God's? What specifically is Jesus talking about? We can go to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And we see the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. And we get to verse 26, we read something in this lines that we, by the way, we see the Holy Spirit there, or we see the Trinity there, because God says in verse 26, let us make man in our image. Who's the us and the our? It's the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. They were there in the beginning. But what does God say? Let us make man in our image. What the Bible teaches us is that as people, as humans, as created beings, we were created in the image of God as moral creations. But we know what happens later on in Genesis. Sin comes into the world through the choosing of of Eve and Adam. And sin enters humanity. And what we read all the way through the Old Testament. And what we see the Apostle Paul teaching in Romans. And in various places in the New Testament. Is that while we are created in the image of God. Because we all have this sin issue. We have this sin problem. That, that sin mars the image of God in our lives. 
But the good news is, what Paul also teaches in the New Testament, is that when we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are made new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, the new things are coming. Here's what this teaches us when we understand why Jesus said, so you give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but you give to God the things that are made in his image that have, has his inscription on it. We learn what it, what it reveals our, to ourselves as believers is that Christians are being transformed, but we have already been conformed to the image of Christ. Both of those words are used by the Apostle Paul to talk about our lives as believers and the imprint that happens in our lives. The that what happens that when we accept Christ, when we receive the gospel, for God so loved the world, when we receive the gospel, what happens is the inscription, the imprint, the image on our life is Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles open, turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Two words that Paul uses throughout his writings to talk about that, that um, made in his image. One is transformed and one is conformed. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, I'll begin reading in verse 28. We read, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, what? To be conformed to what? to the image of Jesus Christ, to the image of God's Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is Paul teaching us there? That at the moment of salvation, at the moment of salvation, the, the imprint, the image of Christ is stamped onto our hearts, is stamped onto our lives, we bear the image of Christ at the moment of salvation. And because we bear the image of Christ, we ought to give to Christ. We ought to give to God what is his. What is his? Everything that we have is his. Our job is his. Our families are his. Our homes are his. Our tithes are his. Our children are his. Everything, they're all his. Why? Because we have been stamped. We have been conformed to the image of Jesus Christ through the salvation that happens only by grace through faith. So that happens at the moment of salvation. But Paul goes and develops that a little further when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. If you have your Bibles, turn there. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. What he also tells us that not only at the moment of salvation are we conformed, that we bear that image of Christ in our life, but we are in a process of being transformed into that image of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image. There we go again. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So how can it be that it is both being conformed 
Romans, and transform 2 Corinthians. It's like this. At the moment of salvation, the image of Christ is stamped into our lives, stamped onto our lives, stamped onto our heart. But it's not finished there. The transformation begins at that point. And as we read his word, and as we spend time in prayer, as we grow in the Lord, as we study his word, we begin to be transformed by his spirit. And our lives become transformed to where more and more the image of Christ is evident in our lives. If you want to know the theological word for that, it's called sanctification. The sanctification begins the moment of salvation, and it never ends. It is always in process of transforming our lives, that our lives look more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, until the moment of our death or until the Lord comes and takes us home. And so throughout our lives, as we grow, as we study, as we mature as believers, His stamp, His image becomes more more readily seen. More more evident, clearer in our lives. Isn't that beautiful? Because I tell you, I, I think you will say you're like me. Folks, there are times that I get discouraged. Because I understand that I've been conformed through Jesus Christ. I've been conformed by his son to bear his image. That happened many years ago upon my salvation. But man, that transformation, I, you know, I'll think, okay, boy, God is really transforming me. But then I'll make a decision and I'll do things that disappoints myself and I know disappoints the Lord. And I think, gosh, am I still that far behind? What the Apostle Paul teaches us is that transformation takes place over the entire span of our lives. And as we walk with him, as we walk according to the spirit, Galatians, as we walk according to the spirit and not the flesh, what happens in our life is the, all the different sections, all the different parts, all the different areas of our life are just become transformed to where they each look more and more like Christ. One of the not one of, one of the, I guess one of the, the main venues of TV now. It's huge. Billion dollar TV is home renovations. Some of you who are older, I can remember when the only home renovation was Bob Vila. You remember that? You remember Bob Vila? Was the name of his show This Old House? Was he the one that did This Old House? And it was boring. I liked watching it, but it was boring as, as all get out. But now HGTV came, and there's show after show after show. And the one that, that most people, that seems to be Chip and Joanna. And what happens? They take these families, these couples, to see these houses that are just run down you know, and you think, how can that house ever look good again? How can that house ever look nice again? But they choose this house, 
And then, and then they let Chip and Joanna do their work. Joanna comes in, and she has this vision of what the house is going to look like. And she tells Chip, Chip, here's what I need you to do. And the whole episode, they're working on the house. And finally, at the end of the episode, Chip and, jo- Chip and Joanna bring the couple back. And they're standing out in front of the house. But the house is covered with this huge, this huge tarp, this huge picture of what the house used to look like. And they'll say, Michael, Julie, are you ready to see your new house? Yes, I'm ready. And they pull the, the curtain back, and they, they go from seeing this old rundown house to seeing this magnificent, beautiful place. And their eyes get big, and they get excited, and they go into the different rooms of the house. And then they show us to remind us what it looked like before and what it looks like now. And it was a dump of a living room before. And now, look, at it's bright and shiny and beautiful. And the kitchen was horrible before. But look at the kitchen now and the hallway and the bedrooms and the bathrooms, all this kind of stuff. And they, we leave the show saying, oh, look at that transformation. I want to tell you something. That's what happens in our lives when we receive salvation and we have been conformed to the image of God through Jesus Christ's Son, that transformation takes place in our lives. And he goes into the different rooms and the areas of our lives and he transforms us to look more like the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul says it's not by our own works It's by the Holy Spirit that works in us. And I don't know about you, but I say, oh, Father, first of all, thank you. Thank you that you do the transformation in my life. And I know I'm a long way from where you want me to be. But God, would you keep going into those different rooms of my life? And through your Son and through your Spirit, transform my life. To bear the image of your son. What a wonderful God we serve. That that's exactly what he does. And it's all his work. It's not ours. The spies thought they had him. Jesus knew better. May we give to God. May we render to God the things that are His. Would you stand and bow your heads? I'm going to pray. And I hope that in the recognition of what Christ has done in our life as believers, stamped His Son on our lives and is in that process of transformate, transforming our lives. We're going to close in just a moment by singing the, doc, the doxology. And it's just a praise. We, we need to praise God for that. We need to praise God for what he has done through his son Jesus. And after we sing that, I want to give you an invitation. I'm going to be at the cross. Tracy's going to be at the cross. Micah's going to be at the cross. Maybe today you say, you know what? Um, I've never had the imprint of God stamped on my life. I've never received salvation. I've gone to church all my life, but I know I'm not a Christian. And today you say, I want my life to be conformed to the image of Christ. You want to become a Christian. Would you meet us at the cross? Maybe today you say, you know what, I I just need prayer. I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that. And I just need prayer that I would allow the Lord to 
work on those different rooms of my heart, different rooms of my life to transform them to his likeness for his glory. Or maybe today you say, I want to join this faith family in order to serve the body of Christ right here at Crossroads. Whatever the Holy Spirit's laying on your heart, would you respond? I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing the doxology. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Oh, Father, may we keep in mind that you transcend all. You not only transcend politics, you transcend every earthly thing. Oh, Father, may we keep our eyes on you. May we not be derailed. May we not be sidetracked by any issue. May we not be sidetracked by politics. But, Father, may we keep our eyes on the mission that you have given to us. That's evangelism, to share the gospel to the world because that's the answer for our nation and that's the answer for our world. Father, I thank you that when we call out to you, that by grace through faith, you receive us and you forgive us of our sins and you conform us to the likeness of your Son. And daily, You transform us. You transform our lives to be more like your son. Father, I pray that your son will shine through each of us. That as we go home, as we go to eat, as we go to work, as we go to the community, God, that your image will be readily seen in our lives that we will give unto you what is yours and that's everything. Father, I pray now that you will receive our praise. And I pray that as the Holy Spirit is leading, we will respond. And I pray this in the name of Jesus and all the church said, Amen.